Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Hi, this is Steve. It's 2019, and that means a whole new year of films is available for review on the Cinephiles. As we did last year, we asked you which film in 2009 you would most like to hear us talk about. Our list of options included the biggest grossing film of all time, Avatar, cult sci-fi hit District 9, Zack Snyder's adaptation of what is arguably the greatest graphic novel of all time, Watchmen. J.J. Abrams' reboot of Star Trek, indie darling 500 Days of Summer was on the list, the comedy blockbuster of all blockbusters, The Hangover, Oscar winner Up in the Air, and Robert Downey Jr.'s Sherlock Holmes. We thought it would be pretty close, but one film blew them all away, taking over 36% of the vote, and that was Quentin Tarantino's World War II film, Inglorious Bastards, starring Brad Pitt, Melanie Laurent, Michael Fassbender, and the incomparable Christoph Waltz in the performance that won him the Academy Award. This is, without question, a fascinating film by a master filmmaker. But the truth is, I struggle with this movie, and you can hear why in what I think was a great conversation with John. So, if you haven't seen Inglorious Bastards, I highly recommend buying or streaming it through our website, cinephiles.net. Then, Come back here on Friday to hear John and I discuss your number one pick for 2009, Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards. My name is Lieutenant Aldo Rain, and I'm putting together a special team, and I need me eight soldiers. Eight. 
Jewish American soldiers. Once we're in enemy territory, as a bushwhacking guerrilla army, we're gonna be doing one thing and one thing only. Killing Nazis. <laughs> Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film, we explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, my name is John Roker. I am a voiceover artist, performer, and actor here. <laughs> I thought we'd play around with a German accent. I live on this is John Roker. I am a, uh, you guys know me, I'm a voiceover artist. I write, uh, produce, and host over at Collider and uh, on the Top Ten show. Uh, and, um, boy, this is an, Steve and I were talking off camera, off uh, mic rather, before we started this podcast. This is going to be an interesting one for you all who have listened to us for such a long time. Sit back, relax, pour yourself a nice milk or brandy and, yeah. uh, uh, listen to us go through this movie. Well, th- this is a, this is a weird one because yeah. it is now 2019, and as we do, as we've done the last couple of years, and maybe we'll do for every year of the cinephiles is... Yeah. A new year means that we open up a whole new year 10 years ago, so 2009 is open to us. And we sent out a survey, and we had 10 movies on the survey, and by far, not even close, <laughs> the winner was Inglorious Bastards' Quentin Tarantino mm-hmm. um, with 36% of the vote. Yeah. And the next closest one was Watchmen with 12% of the Ooh, vote. I would love to tackle Watchmen whenever we get to that. Well, that's a whole other thing because that is, you know, to me, the the opus masterpiece of all comic book literature. Agreed. But I've only seen the movie once. Wow. I saw it in the theater and that was it. I, okay. Um, so I encourage you to see the director's that's cut what I've heard. So I, yeah, so I, I would love to do that. Yeah, but cl- this one was and and as as I was watching the votes come in, I was kind of nervous because the reality is I don't love this movie. Oh, I have I admire it. Once I, again, this is one of this is not your movie. Yeah, one of Steve's not your movies. Well, but but this one in particular. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There, there are other movies that I have problems with this film. Okay. Like I have. The most problems with this film of any film we've done since Armageddon, and, and the, how dare you? And the, but the reality is, <laughs> it's a different kind of problems, and we'll kind of go into them f- through the movie. But with with Armageddon, I totally acknowledge that it is a fun, yeah. silly romp. I believe that when I was on the top ten show, it was in my list. Yes, because it is it, space it's, movies. So, but this takes on like heavy, serious mm-hmm. issues mm-hmm. and handles in in ways that make me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so I have. Well, and I watched the film, and I watched it again, and tried. To, I tried to do exactly the same level of research and study and thought that we do for every movie in the cinephiles. Mm-hmm. But there are things where I go, "That is brilliant," but I don't like how this makes me feel. I am uncomfortable with this film in some ways, right? You know, and 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 looking at you know critical response to it, it is a very divisive movie. Mm-hmm. Some people like apparently at least thirty six percent of our fans yeah. absolutely love this film, right? And some people don't. Well, that's what's so great about this show, Steve, is we can talk about it honestly and freely. We're not beholden to any studio or any director or writer or actor or star. We will talk about it openly, and I hope our fans are open-minded to listen to our points of view on it, both good and bad. And, of course, this is not only the number one pick for our 2009 films, but mm-hmm. it is also a Patreon pick from Clay Williams, who's been helpful for us in all sorts of yes, things. Yes, thank you, Clay. And Matt Coria. Oh, nice. And thank so you, Matt. I'd like to hear why you guys picked this film. What's up, John and Steve? This is Matt from Miami, Florida. Inglorious Bastards is one of my favorite movies of all time. The acting tour de force that you get from Christoph Waltz, the beamed down but yet so powerful Melanie Laurent, 
and the unforgettable Lieutenant Aldo Rain portrayed by Brad Pitt are just some highlights from the movie that I love so much. But what really gets me to the edge of my seat every time I watch it are the quiet moments in between the bombastic ones. The scenes with Daniel Brühl and Millie Laurent when he actually seems likable while also being a vicious killing Nazi. And of course the underground bar scene, need I say more? And when Brad Pitt turns to the camera at the end of the film and says, I think this might just be my masterpiece, in my opinion, that is Tarantino talking directly to the audience, and I agree with him 100%. Hey, John and Steve, this is Clay once again from Portland, Oregon. Inglourious Bastards is one of my favorite movies of all time. Quentin Tarantino is my favorite director of all time. So this movie has a special place in my heart for obvious reasons. I think there are so many memorable and quotable scenes, and it is one of the best written movies I have ever seen. The way that he builds tension through his dialogue is done so well, and it gives the movie two of its most memorable scenes. The beginning with Christoph Waltz in The Farmer, or in the bar scene with Michael Fassbender. It gives you this exhilarating feeling that I don't think many movies can truly do, where you feel anything could happen in any which way. Great. Loved it. Yeah. Do you remember how you first came to it? Yeah, uh, definitely in the theater. Uh, I think it was with our crew of people, certainly to go see it, excited to go see it. Um, it's Tarantino back in the mid to late 2000s, 2010s, around that area when Tarantino was like God. So you sure. went to go see everything he did. I remember being very excited about this. I remember hearing ahead of time, because I didn't see it opening weekend. I know it's not like a week after, that Christoph Waltz was the thing to see in this movie. Like Everybody talked about it. Everybody talked about it. And when you sit there and watch it, I remember coming out of the theater going, this is maybe some of the most incredibly well-written scenes that Tarantino has ever put on film. And yet, I was a bit put off by the fantasy aspect of it all well, that's when what happens at the end of the movie. That's what's that's the stuff we're going to get into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I did not see it in the theater. Mm. I somehow missed it. And it was kind of in the era when my movie going in theaters had, was going down. Yeah. And uh, so what ended up happening is I watched it uh, sometime after Jax was born, so 2011-ish. And this became my regular, oh, I never saw this in the theater after everyone's gone to mm. bed, I'll watch it. And I watched it probably in three or four sittings and mm. late at night. You know, I didn't sit down and watch it all at once. Wow. Um, and I had this like the opening scene. This is one of the greatest scenes on film. Absolutely. And then other scenes, I'm like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this. And then right. another scene like, wow, this scene is amazing. And went, but would go back and forth mm -hmm. watching it over those several nights. And then really tried to dig into it in the last week and a half of really studying it and trying to get my head around what's happening here yeah um a little bit of pre-production i don't have that much obviously this is a movie at the weinstein company mm -hmm. uh we don't need to go into anything more about the weinsteins it's kind of been over that a bit mm -hmm. um so tarantino worked on this script for 10 years wow yeah and he he started it and stopped it and started it and stopped it and he says that he really when he finished this script finally that he felt this was his masterpiece mm. that this was his and, and it was interesting it's his masterpiece and also an homage to uh the dirty dozen yeah and to spaghetti westerns you know but this is he said this is the movie that like really he was most proud of when he finished the script mm. Of course, the the most important person to cast was Brad Pitt, mm -hmm. and they had wanted to work together for a while. And what a thing I found out: Brad Pitt only books one movie in a, ahead of time, so he doesn't he's not scheduled three movies down the line. So he just it would just happen to be that when the money came in for Tarantino to do the movie, he happened to be free. Yeah, and they went okay, and let's go forward. Um, they shot the movie really quickly. They tried to shoot it in sequence. 
Oh. Um, which is really interesting. That is rare, though. Yeah, right? very rare and Big difficult. Like this, yeah. Um, and and Tarantino, it seems like his style is to shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and then stop. He doesn't want to spread things out. He doesn't want long shoots. He doesn't want to take a lot of time with stuff. He wants to go through and do it. That seems to make sense with the way his personality is. We see him in interviews. Yep. John, would you like to start the film in Glorious Bastards? Let's do this thing. Okay. You know what's really weird is that Universal logo comes up, yeah. and it's an old Universal logo, but it's not. It's like a 70s, mid-70s Universal logo, which it seems to me that is where Quentin Tarantino is, ta is trapped. Oh yeah, you know, like he, because this is a World War II movie made in two thousand eight, but the logo he chooses is from the seventies. Yeah, it's when Lindley and I were watching it last night before uh, before we recorded this uh, podcast for today, and I turned to her after it was over and I said to her, I said, he is perpetually stuck in the seventies. No matter where he sets his movies in time, they are always. In the seven, they always have a seventies vibe to them, and I kind of love that. It's what he does. It's it is what he, what, knows, he is. what he does best. He knows it really well. People give Guy Ritchie shit for doing those films that are from like, oh, those are like you know British gangster films, right? But in essence, the energy Tarantino brings to everything he does, no matter what he sets, is seventies. And it's this particular. It's not the conversation and no, apocalypse no, no, now seventies. No. It's not network, and no. you know, it's not that. It's 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 schlock house, yeah, black exploitation, yep, yep. yeah, grindhouse, like that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. but with way more artistry to it. But a lot of artistry. Well, I think we talked about this when we did Reservoir Dogs. We talked about this when we did Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. Is what he's doing is sort of elevating, yes, the platonic ideal of a certain kind of thing. Yes, and this is elevating the Dirty Dozen and elevating like the, you know, the tough fighting, yeah, soldier kind of movie mm -hmm. in his weird Tarantino way. Mm -hmm. Uh, this movie has chapter headings, and this is chapter one. It's Once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied France. It is 1941. Straightforward. Well, and it's it's this is Sergio Leone. Yeah. Once Upon a Time in the West. Yep. And the music that's playing, I think, is Morricone. Yes. Um, Morricone. Who he wanted to have be the comp actual composer on the film, but he was busy on another gig. But he did pull a several tracks from Morricone, oh, which wow. is what's in the film. And Tarantino has a great, great sense of music. Oh, yeah. One of the best. We're at a farmhouse. There's a guy chopping some wood. His daughters are, you know, doing laundry and stuff. And we hear some cars pulling up. And um, and he tells the daughters to go, you know, into the house and up pull the Germans. And out of the German car steps Christoph Waltz. Yeah. Colonel Landa. Colonel Landa. He is amazing in this film. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing. Yes, I have problems with this movie. But my problems with the movie is not... The performance of Christoph Waltz. Yeah, I mean, right. it is a remarkable, amazing performance. Mm -hmm. We can tell right from the moment that the guy who's the dairy farmer sees this guy that something's up. Yeah. A sense of dread. Huge, huge sense of dread. Um, and he, he kind of washes his face and and up walks Colonel Londa, and he is polite mm. and pleasant. C'est un plaisir de vous rencontrer, Monsieur Lapadite. Je suis le colonel SS Hans Landa. This is subtitled in, uh, this is French that's been subtitled. Mm -hmm. One of the crazy things about this movie is I think it's only about a third of the film is in English. Yeah. The vast majority is subtitled, mm -hmm. which made it really, really hard for me. So, oh, I see. <laughs> Just because I'm taking notes and I, because oh, well, I can listen to dialogue and type it into my iPad, mm -hmm. but I can't read subtitles and then go back because <laughs> every time I look down, I miss it. So I can't keep because normally I would hear the next line of dialogue and right. keep keep typing. It was 
terrible. To Whenever do someone this. comes up to me and goes, "Oh, I can't watch those foreign films. They have subtitles." I go, "Did you watch Inglorious Bastards?" "Oh, I loved it." Case closed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. It's it's about subject matter. It's not about subtitles. Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, or or maybe they're just functionally illiterate. <laughs> Um, wow. Okay. Sorry. Did I sound angry there? Maybe a little bit. Look, I had a rough night last you did, night. You did. You did. But I'm it's not, perfect for you to review I, the film. I've not. I've not slept that much. Um, and they go inside the house. There's some introductions, and he graciously kisses one of the daughter's hands and says, "Each one's more lovely than the last." And the dairy farmer says, "Oh, get him some wine." And he goes, "No, you're a dairy farmer. I would like to sample your milk. Mm-hmm. The milk is weird." Yeah. It is weird. But that's, it's, you know, because milk has symbolism. Sure. Right? You know, and uh, I, I love the, you know, people take milk baths. People do, is there something about the milk, the purity of white milk, this evil man wanting to drink this purity of white milk? White milk is also like a, what people describe young, like they describe the young skin is nubile. It's milky, right? That kind of thing. You got these young daughters standing there. You got these other girls that we're going to find out in just a minute are under the floorboards who he's been harboring. So you have all of this kind of coming together. Plus he's drink taking of his milk. is taking of his, of his purchase of his, what he's done on that farm. And it's just, all of it is like, it's weirdly uh, emasculating what he's doing to him. Well, and, and it seems that all of what Londa wants to do is to make him uncomfortable. Yes. He is, he he knows that this guy knows that he's here looking for Jews that are being hidden from the Nazis. Yes. And so rather than just going right, hey, I'm here to look for Jews being hidden from the Nazis, mm-hmm. he's extending every moment. And this is really interesting, I think, because we just did our month on Hitchcock, yeah. is that this is what, this is suspense. This is, I think this is Tarantino's most Hitchcockian film. Particularly this opening scene, because it's all about extending time. It's all about suspense. It's not about thrills. And everything goes really slowly, including they pour him the milk. And we really watch that milk Mm. get poured. And we see him start to drink. And then we see him drink down the whole big glass of milk, which makes me wonder, how many takes did they do? Yeah. Because drinking a whole big glass of milk, how many of those can you do (laughs) and still look like that was delicious? Yeah. I mean, I don't like milk. I, I would have trouble drinking down one big glass really? of milk. No, oh, okay. I don't drink milk. I only like it with vanilla wafers. That's the only way. I sure, drink. I understand that. I mean, over a nice bowl of cereal, I'll have some milk. But yeah, I don't. Uh, drinking a glass of milk just sounds gross. To me. Yeah. Um, uh, and everyone is staring as he drinks this thing down, and then with so much enthusiasm, compliments the milk. I mean, he is just you know says bravo to the cows. Mm. It's a really really funny scene. Um, and then says, you know, this is private and ask the girls to go outside. They go outside. And then he says, I regret to inform you, but I've exhausted my French. It would embarrass me to keep talking. I hear you speak English very well, to which he says, we. Oui. <laughs> and then they says, let's speak in English. Well, I'm very familiar with you and your family. I have no way of knowing if you are familiar with who I am. Are you aware of my existence? Yes. His performance is great. Too. Oh yeah, yeah, um, great dead eyes, great yeah. eyes of like half asleep, eyes that are of pure fear the whole time. Yeah, and 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 there's a sense of inevitability in the scene. Yes, you know um, that he knows like we have to go through this charade. Yeah, because I know I'm not getting out of this. To me, I liken it when you watch the nature specials and when the the lion or the predator finally clamps down on the mm. prey, the eyes just go, the eyes just accept the situation. 
And that's what he feels like. He feels like he's already in the mouth of the predator. Yeah. And he forces him. Well, and that's what he's doing because yeah. he's toying with him. Yes. He's just moving him around. Because the next thing he does is force him to say, hey, well, if you say you know who I am, then what do you, who am I? Yeah. And he says, oh, well, I, I hear the Fuhrer has put you in charge of finding Jews. Mm-hmm. And he's, oh, I couldn't have said it better myself. Mm-hmm. And he seems so enthusiastic and happy. But um, the meaning of your visit, pleasant though it is, is um, m- mysterious to me. The Germans looked through my house nine months ago for hiding Jews and found nothing. I'm aware of that. But like any enterprise, when under new management, there's always a slight duplication of efforts. Most of it being a complete waste of time, but needs to be done nevertheless. And then we see him pull out paper and fountain pen, and he's meticulously placing everything in just the right spot. And again, this is just extending the tension. Mm-hmm. And he says, I want to ask you a few questions. And he asks about there are four Jewish families in this dairy farming area, and they know what happened to three of them. And one of them, they don't know what happened to them. And he says, what do you know about them? And the guy's like, well, I just know rumors. Well, t- oh, rumors are great. <laughs> I love rumors. Facts can be so misleading. Were rumors true or false are often revealing. So, Monsieur Lepetit. What rumors have you heard? And he forces the guy to say the names Mm -hmm. of each of the people and say what the rumors are. And the farmer asks to smoke his pipe, and he gets up to smoke his pipe. And every one of these little details, him lighting the pipe, him all these things, plating out the paper, the fountain pen, they just increase the tension because it's so slowly paced. Landa's pipe. (laughs) Oh, dude, when he brings out that pipe. Is one of the most incredible things in the movie. It is so perfect in its audacity in its size it is mm-hmm. the pipe that an arrogant man would have uh who fears nothing because it's ridiculous any other man pulls a pipe like that almost any other man it's ridiculous you're trying too hard with him it's perfectly within his personality why do you think he has that pipe i think it's to show the his dominance it's the biggest pipe in the room it's almost like a sausage uh, you know, what they call a, you know, comparing penis sizes. He's pulling out the larger pipe. Well, it's cl- very clear. And the brightest pipe. You it know? is so ridiculous. And what I think, too, is that it goes to this thing of toying with something. Yes. Is that Londa is a sadist. Mm-hmm. There's no reason for him to do anything that he's doing nope, in here. Not at all. He already knows where the Jews are hidden. Yep. He, all, the only reason to do it this way is to torture this guy. He's a psychopath. Yeah. Legitimate psychopath. Absolutely. And him pulling out that ridiculous pipe is just like, yeah, and look at this. Yeah. You know, it is such a weird, weird moment. And as he's lighting his pipe and we start smoking, the camera moves down along the body, down past the legs to the floorboards, looks underneath through the cracks in the floorboards. And there we see the Jewish family is hiding. And they're covering their mouths. I think it's the smoke. We follow the pipe smoke down. I Mm, think. Is that what it is? I think. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And now he's asking for another glass of milk. (laughs) Um, And then again, he's still asking about himself. He says, you know, there's a nickname that people call me. And and of course, the farmer doesn't want to say it. He's putting the farm in this horrible trap, which is like, I don't want to tell you the name that might be offensive to you just so you can kill me. Uh, And finally, he does convince him to say it. He says, oh, they call you the Jew hunter. The feature that makes me such an effective hunter of the Jews is, as opposed to most German soldiers... I can think like a Jew, where they can only think like a German. And then we get into this thing of what makes Londa a good Jew hunter. And again, this is some yeah, some crazy logic here, Yeah, which is that there are traits that the Germans have 
in common with the beast, and I think those traits are cunning and predatory instincts of the hawk. Mm. The German is like a hawk. But if one were to determine what attributes the Jews share with the beast, it would be that of the rat. But where our conclusions differ is I don't consider the comparison an insult. You know, that the rat lives in a hostile world. You know, what if you were a rat, you would do what a rat does. And, and he says, too, and this is where it gets really interesting to me. He says, if a rat were to scamper through your front door right now, would you greet it with hostility? I suppose I would. Has a rat ever done anything to you to create this animosity you feel toward them? Which is an interesting thing with this in this extremely anti-Semitic character. I mean, he right. literally is the Jew hunter. Yeah. And he is has no compunction about killing Jews. Yeah. But then he's actually defending the position of the Jew by saying, what has the Jew done to you, essentially, mm -hmm. as the rat? Rats spread disease to bite people. Rats were the cause of the bubonic plague, but that's some time ago. I propose to you any disease a rat could spread, a squirrel could equally carry. Would you agree? Right. Yet I assume you don't share the same animosity with squirrels that you do with rats, do you? Do you think that Londa actually hates Jews? Is he anti-Semitic? I think he's anti-everyone. But because the German army and the Nazis have given him a uniform to wear and the support to um, go after Jewish people to indulge his psychopathy uh, or psychopathic nature, natures, uh, in this moment, at this time in his life, he hates Jews. And later we find out he's derisive towards uh, black people as well later on, but certainly derisive towards Jews in this moment. Now, when he says this, right, this is an interesting point of discussion. I know it's a three-hour, two and a half-hour film, but it's interesting point of, when he talks about the rat coming in, oh, what's the rat done to you if you choose hostility, right? right? But accepting that comparison is accepting that a Jewish person is a rat. And then accepting that if a Jewish person comes into your place, you're immediately going to be defensive. And then he turns it on the guy. When he turns it on the guy, he's like, well, why would you feel this way, right? He's trying to get the guy to be in, on his, in his camp, in his support of what he's doing. And it's a very interesting psychological approach to it all. And it's unsettling as hell. It's a weird, it's a weird scene. So as a Jewish person. Yes, yes. Like, I... I I don't have an answer to this, but part of me is like, I don't know that he's anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. I think he's a psychopath. Okay. I think if it was um, Mormons... If he was told to hunt Mormons, he would, he would use this same kind of philosophy. Is that he... he, yeah. he Well, because he shows no compunction about killing anyone, switching right. sides. He doesn't have any particular loyalty. Right. He, I think he likes hunting and killing people. Yes. And I think he likes fucking with people. Yes. You know? And, 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 and this is what part of what makes him such a great villain is he sees the fallacy of the construct in which he lives. Yeah. Like, he goes, this is all ridiculous. Oh, yes, of course he does. You know, this yeah. is a stupid thing, and I'm doing this job. They're letting me do this job. Yeah. Which is, within itself, insane. Yeah. And then I love this moment. If a rat were to walk in here right now as I'm talking, would you greet it with a source of your delicious milk? <laughs> now, that's such an amazing moment, because, first of all, it's, what we've been talking about, which is your preconceived notions of the rat or the Jew, mm -hmm. have have forced you to treat it differently than you would treat the squirrel, even though they're both rodents, right. you know. But what did he just drink? Yeah, he no. just 
he had a saucer of milk. Right. And he he's the rat. I mean, mm-hmm. he came in a person who is unquestionably a threat right. to him, who he knows is a threat. He did give the saucer of milk to. Mm-hmm. I find that really interesting. And the other thing he says is that this is the problem with why the Germans have trouble finding the Jews, because they think like a hawk, whereas I can think like a Jew. Um, which, you know, again... I'm a Jewish man. Right. This is, we're, we're in, this is, we're talking about the Holocaust here. This yeah. is as big and important a thing. And so like, there's a weird sort of. And this is the beginning, right, Steve? Because 1941 is the Holocaust in full swing at this point. Yes. Or is it building into where we see later well, on? I mean, Hitler, Hitler takes power in 33. Yeah. I think the rules on Jewish, Jews wearing yellow stars and being stripped of their abilities to uh, own stores and things like that mm-hmm. starts happening in 36. Right. Kristallnacht might be 37, okay. which is when all the Jewish buildings were attacked and the glass was all broken and the temples were attacked and right. all that. Right. Um, Jews started to get r- rounded up at 39. Okay. And then the gas chambers are almost immediately afterwards. Well, I th- I mean, so I, I did not actually okay. re- well, the- research the timeline so much, but, but right. the, I, it's, a hard, it's a hard topic to talk about. But sure, I'm sure. They got better. Yeah. Okay. So initially when they started killing Jews, they had firing squads. Right. And that wasn't very efficient. Because bullets are expensive. This is literally the conversation that is happening in the German high command is we can't waste a bullet on a Jew. And so it became how do we more efficiently Mm -hmm. kill them? And it's it's 42, 43 when the really big concentration camps of Dachau and Auschwitz and Birkenau and all those places really start built with the showers and the gas chambers and the mass graves and all that stuff. So that's coming. I don't know when the first one of those kinds of camps was really built. But it's so. This is the beginning. Do you think he's Jewish? Londa? Half Jewish? Have never, you ever thought of him? No, no, no. Do you think he is? Yes. Okay. It struck, it struck me as I was watching it this time, because remember Hitler was half Jewish. There's a rumor that he. Might oh, have the been, rumor, right. a rumor might have been quarter Jewish. Yeah, quarter Jewish. So wouldn't this be interesting? This is why he can really hunt, supposedly hunt Jewish people, is because he's feels an affinity for them he knows them he senses them things of that nature i don't know but it occurred to me last night wouldn't this be interesting if he was actually half jewish and then this it puts a whole another element to this film a self-hatred yeah it's it's uh, what what's so far uh, here's here's why i don't think that and of course you could be right there's no is that i don't think there's any self-hatred in this guy at all i think this guy is so pleased with himself all the time yeah he is, ha- I mean, because he's a fucking sociopath, and he mm-hmm. is having a ball. Yeah, that fucking with this guy is great. Strangling a woman is great. But totally turning on everybody that he, you know, he he's the more fucked up things he does, yeah. the happier happier he seems to be. Yeah, like I don't see him as a person with divided loyalties or repressing. But okay. of course, we don't know, right? Um, yeah. and then we get to this point where he goes, "Listen, my job." obviously, is to bring in the soldiers and search this whole place, and we both know that I'm going to find irregularities. That is unless you have something to tell me that makes the conducting of a search unnecessary. I might add also that any information that makes a performance of my duty easier will not be met with punishment. Actually, quite the contrary. It will be met with reward. And you could see the reaction on this guy's mm. face. Do you think that he knew from the moment he saw Londa that he was going to give up the Jews? Yes. I know from the moment he saw Londa, no. I think from the moment he saw Londa, he was afraid that that was the end result, yeah. going to be the end result, because he's went in way over his head with someone like Londa. And so this, I, that's what I think, too. Yeah. I 100% agree. Is that, and there's, there's this amazing 
expression of pain on his face yeah. and the long, long pause. And he says, you're sheltering enemies of the state, are you not? And there's a pause and very softly yeah. with tears in his eyes, he says, yes. You're sheltering them underneath your floorboards, aren't you? Yes. So Londa knew the whole time where they were. Mm -hmm. um, well, because the job is so easy to him, he has to create these scenarios in order to give him something some, to do. Some turn on in some yeah. way, really. And then he asks him to point to the areas where they're hiding. And this man crying points to the where they are. The colonel can't, stands up and he stands there and points down with his uh, pipe and then says, and I think that he is, then let's be really clear. Londa's a genius. Yeah. He is a brilliant man. And he says, well, since I haven't heard any disturbance, I assume they don't speak English, yeah. um, which makes sense. And then he says, okay, we're going to switch back to French and I'm going to leave. And so they switch back to French and he says, oh, thank you for your hospitality. And he walks out as the music is riding up and then he gestures for his soldiers to come in um, um, and kind of says, we won't be bothering your family anymore. Farewell. And the farmer says, adieu. And the soldiers open fire through the floorboards. It is just a brutal slaughter. Yeah. Yep. And a young woman uh, runs out through, like, the window underneath the floorboards mm -hmm. and starts running. And out comes uh, Londa, lifts up his handgun, aims. She's a good distance away. Mm -hmm. That would be an amazing shot. Um, we see her, she's covered in blood, she's sobbing, and he doesn't fire. And then he says, <laughs> with a big grin on his head, mm -hmm. on his face. Why does he let her go? Well, because you can't shoot her from here. He's but got I think, dudes with a car. I yeah, mean, like, a good point, but I think, it's, I think he lets her go because uh, it's sporting. You know what I'm saying? It's sporting for him to let her go so then he can find her later. That's what I think, too. Yeah, it's teasing I, it out. Here, go run. I'm going to catch you later. I'll catch you later. Um, I found you here. I'll find you again. Um, I, that's what I think, too. I yeah. think he likes this game. He he loves mm -hmm. being the Jew hunter. Mm -hmm. If he caught her, then that's one less Jew he can hunt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and by the way, I think this scene, this opening scene is 22, 23 minutes it's long. incredible. And this thing we're going to see throughout this film is really long scenes. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you right now, I have, will say two opposite things. Okay. One thing is, this is where I see it as a Hitchcockian film, his ability to pull out tension, mm. his ability to give you suspense, his ability to plant information, like you see the eye looking through the floorboard, yeah. and you your dread of that comes, and the fact that he extends the time with the pipe and the milk and all these conversations, laying out the paper and the pen does raise the tension. And I 100% think that is true, and if I were the editor on this film, I'd cut this shit down. <laughs> Not yeah, as not as much in this scene because I think this right, scene is this scene's incredible. But later on, there's some things where it's like, yeah, the basement scene in goes the bar. On, it goes. Do you know how long that goes one on? Is, way by too way? long. No, thirty-seven minutes long. Oh my god, yeah, that goes on way too long. It's way too long. Um, but this opening scene is a great way to give you exposition. It's you know people talk about people tell us on the top ten show you should do the top ten greatest introductions of an actor or a character in a movie. This is incredible. This, this is be on the list. This is Christoph's, what, I think first Ameri first movie. I don't know, because he was a TV actor. I think it's first, his first feature film ever. Is it? And wow. he, you know, he's incredible. And Tarantino found him. If watching something on German TV or watch someone suggests something, and he watched this guy, and he's like, this. he saw this guy could play this character. 
and brought him in, and he's phenomenal in this role. And this whole exposition, by the time this scene is done, you understand who this character is. You understand the dread that this character brings to every room he walks into. And you understand that you're dealing with an absolute psychopath. And he immediately, before the movie's even, like, maybe a quarter of the way in, he's already one of the greatest villains to ever be on film. Before you see the rest of the movie. Would you like to know who Quentin Tarantino originally wanted to cast in this role? Oh, my God. Harvey Keitel? Leonardo DiCaprio. (laughs) Thank God he did not. I mean, look, Leo has impressed me. I mean, you know. Sure, Leo's a good actor. He's a really good actor. Great actor, even. But but this guy, I mean. No. This is so authentic. This is so magical what he does. It's so authentic. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hello, Cinephiles fans. You know, we all kind of walk around with these stressors, big, small, medium in our lives that are triggered sometimes by frustrations at work or frustrations at our job or just frustrations overall about our life. Because sometimes you know this, if you compare, you despair and you just want to live a life that's a little bit more clean and accepting of yourself and a little more open to receiving positive messages for yourself so you can have that life that you want to live and have that great work-life balance. And it's not always easy. And for me, for years and years, I thought all of this stress, all of this hardship, I had to just carry on my own, that this is what it meant to be a man. And it was finally getting therapy where I realized like, oh, I don't have to carry that stuff. There's a place where I can unburden myself and actually get advice and guidance about how to deal with it better in the future. Yeah, Steve, you and I have spoken very proudly about how therapy has helped both of both of us deal with our stressors in our lives. And if any of you are listening to us who are thinking of starting therapy, well, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you have to do is to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if things aren't working out, which I think is a great benefit. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Cinephiles today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. Chapter 2, Inglorious Bastards. Oh, you know something I should have said that I forgot to mention? So first of all, the the title, Inglorious Bastards, is spelled in this really weird way. Yeah, Bastards. Uh, and there's the extra you and Inglorious, mm-hmm. and that it is not really based on, but there's an Italian movie, which I think is 1978, oh. uh, which is called Inglorious Bastards. Mm. Um, and uh, Tarantino liked the title. And there's uh, he's been asked multiple times, why do you have the weird spelling? And he's given, this doesn't seem to be a right answer. One was to differentiate it from the t- title. One is because he said, oh, well, people don't say bastards. They say bastards, which sounds like an E. You know, there was a whole bunch of reasons he did it, but I think he just thought it was fun. I don't yeah. know. Why not? And the director from the Italian film, whose name is right in front of me, actually shows up in this movie oh. as an SS officer, I think, at the premiere. Nice. So we'll get to later. All right. We're on a, a training ground, and we got seven troops lined up, and we have Brad Pitt. Yeah. His performance is really crazy in this movie. Yeah. Well, it lets you know, like from this opening uh, uh, scene that is so incredible, 27 minutes that you said, very authentic scene, incredible acting, incredibly honest, awesome characters. We have this kind of over-the-top character in Brad Pitt, whereas Landa's character is over-the-top and over-the-top in a way that's believable right. and uh, dread-inducing. 
Brad Pitt is doing that big old accent, doing what he's doing and all that, talking about my dad and talking about coming down from the mountains and go get to kill them Nazis. It's all very overly done. So you can decide for yourself, I believe, in this scene, whether you're in or you're out of this movie. Well, it's, and it's really the scene after this is just where I, the, it really hits me. Yeah. Um, so Brad Pitt, he is recruiting eight Jewish American soldiers yes. that he wants to go parachute behind enemy lines to kill Nazis. Yeah. And he makes a speech. Now, I'm the direct descendant of the mountain man, Jim Bridger. That means I got a little engine in me. And our battle plan will be that of an Apache resistance. We will be cruel to the Germans. And through our cruelty, they will know who we are. And they will find the evidence of our cruelty in the disemboweled, dismembered, and disfigured bodies of their brothers we leave behind us. And the German won't be able to help themselves. But imagine the cruelty their brothers endured at our hands, and our boot heels, and the edge of our knives. And the German will be sickened by us. And the German will talk about us. And the German will fear us. And when the German closes their eyes at night, and they're tortured by their subconscious for the evil they have done, it will be with thoughts of us that they are tortured with. Sound good? Yes, sir! This is what, I think you're right. This is where the movie turns for me, and I don't know how I feel. Yeah. And I think part of it is being Jewish, and what, and what being Jewish means to me, you know? Uh, which is I'm not a vengeful person, mm-hmm. you know, and I believe really strongly in rules of laws and justice and things like that. And he is saying, you guys are all going to owe me a hundred German scalps. Mm-hmm. He wants to run this because he's a descendant from Apaches and he wants to run this like in a Apache resistance, you know, mm-hmm. and to s- essentially scare the crap out of the Germans. Mm-hmm. Guerrilla warfare. It's it's basically it is, but it's more than guerrilla. It's not just guerrilla warfare, mm-hmm. you know. Well, what do you think about this? Like, uh, what's your well, feeling? Look, you're a peaceful person, but Israel has the Mossad. So, I mean, sure. you know what I'm saying. I'm talking like this country has had to fight since its inception in '45 or '46, whenever it was officially became a country, amongst all these Arab countries right around there, constantly fighting for its survival. So it has to adapt certain warrior mentalities within its culture in order to remain where it is. And uh, so this is another, to me, this is just another like window into some other Jewish people who want to fight, who want to be part of this, who want to get at um, you know the Germans and kill the Germans for what they're doing to their people, which has been, I wonder if it had been filtered out or had leaked out by now, how they were rounding up the Jews, what they were doing to the Jews, that kind of thing. So you bring these people together. And, and Sam Levine, who is a friend of mine, uh, through the Schmodown, we talked about this movie, and Sam said that Tarantino purposely looked for people, Jewish kids, that you wouldn't think would be these hard-ass big dudes, blah, blah, right. blah. He wanted regular-looking Jewish kids to play these, or teenagers or 20-year-olds, to play these parts so that they didn't look like they were this imposing force. And you see that it's all B.J. Novak couldn't scare, right. uh, you know, and and Sam too at that time. Sam, so he's still cherub faced if you in the movie. So you see all these things, and so to me, he's just getting them riled up to go and do battle. This is no different to a degree of what I experienced in basic training when they start to tell you the things you have to chant when you're using your weapon. You know, what makes the blood grow? What makes right. the grass grow? Blood drill, Sergeant Blood. You know, you're trained into that mindset, and so. That's what Brad Pitt is doing. He's training them into this mindset that they're going to be this force and they're going to do this thing. 
if they don't want to be a part of it, I'm sure they'd be like, I don't want to be a part of this unit. But they want to be a part of this unit. I think my issue, well, and this is what we'll talk throughout, mm. and, and, and much more when we get to the scene where we actually see what they're doing. Yeah. A lot of my problems with this film come from tone, is that how do we deal with what we're dealing with? So I don't have a problem with seeing a comedy about Nazis, you know, the producers, to be or not to oh, be. Oh, right, 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 right. I mean, I grew up watching Hogan's Heroes. Sure. And like Mel Brooks said a thing, is like the most, the because he got a lot of attacks in 1968 when he did The Producers. Yeah. You know, because that's only 13 years after the war has ended, or or, or 23, sorry, 23 yeah. years after the war has ended, and yeah. people are still like, you can't make jokes about this. Yeah. You're a Jewish director with a bunch of Jewish actors. How can you do this? And what yeah. he said is that the most powerful thing we can do to fight against these ideas is to make them look ridiculous. Yeah. You know, so I don't have a problem with that. And I don't have a problem with Nazis being the, the boogeyman in our adventure film. So Raiders of the Lost okay. Ark, one of my favorite movies, yeah. Nazis are the bad guys. I don't have a problem with that. Um, what's hard with this movie is that opening scene is very serious mm -hmm. and dramatic. Yeah. And then we're going to these sort of weird revenge fantasies that are hyper violent mm -hmm. where I, I didn't see it in the theaters, but I'm sure people were laughing and cheering and, all sorts of stuff watching some of this stuff. I don't know if I remember that. I think, I don't know if I remember that. There, there was laughing and, there was laughing obviously because there are comedic moments in the movie, dark comedic moments in the yeah. movie. But cheering, I don't know if there was necessarily cheering. Because I don't know what Tarantino wants me to feel. I think that's sort of how I, is that, is it, because here's the thing. Yeah. I, I don't think that, of characters within a film all need to represent some kind of moral purity sure, sure, at all. There could be characters in the film that do things that are morally very questionable. Yeah. And there are lots of films we've talked about in the cinephiles where characters are making choices and you felt uh, unsure about, is this the right thing to do? What is the right mm -hmm. thing to do here? Mm -hmm. So Ethan and the Searchers or right. LA Confidential, just filled with all this moral, you know, or another film that we haven't done, but maybe we will someday is, uh, which deals with a lot of this stuff is Steven Spielberg's Munich. Right. You know, and that is clearly about uh, Israelis going out mm -hmm. to uh, revenge themselves and kill the people that had, you know, committed the atrocities in yeah. the Munich Olympics. Yeah. But that movie is filled with moral ambiguity. Mm -hmm. You're not comfortable. You you start out that movie going, let's go get those guys. Right. And by the end of that movie, you're going, huh, I don't know how to feel about this. Did we use all, did we, are we okay with the methods we chose yeah. in order to get these? And, and the fact that that film ends with the Twin Towers in the background. Yeah. Because I really think that that movie is about, does violence beget violence? Like, mm -hmm. how do we, you know, how do we escape this? It, it forces you to ask these questions. Yeah. This movie's not doing that. This movie is, like, thrilling in the way that it handles this stuff. Okay, or I think that's but I but again I this is why I go like I don't know what I'm supposed to feel I feel really weird I'll be honest with you I have never watched this movie and been like cheering for the mm. bastards never once how do you feel about because they're so violent and yeah. they're so um, vicious and they're carrying out of their anger and their uh, revenge and justice and vengeance it's done in a way that is uh, ugly but then again. In war, ugly things sometimes win the day. Uh, it's not all heroic stuff that you can put up on a movie. Sometimes it's that ugly missions that no one wants to talk about that people are sent out to do behind, you know, behind closed doors that they have plausible deniability about that, you know, are the ugly truths about war. And once you get into something like this, it's like, well, where's, where's the line? Because if they're not going to follow the line, 
Why should we follow the line? Of course. You know? Well, this is well. Let's th- 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 this is what we're going to get to. Yeah. Um. So let's let's hold that for a sec. But I want to come back to exactly sure, that sure. point. Um. So he says, "Hey, you know, you guys want to do this?" And they all, of course, go, mm-hmm. "Yes, sir." And uh, we cut to Hitler freaking out. Yeah. And we start hearing stuff about this Jewish bear. Great Hitler, by the way. It's good Hitler for this movie. Great yeah. Hitler. Yeah, the Jewish bear, the Jew bear. The, we hear about the Jew bear. Or the bear, I'm sorry, the bear Jew. The bear Jew, right. Right. Um, and he's like, there are these guys. So we hear that clearly the the bastards are doing something mm-hmm. and that Hitler wants them stopped um, because he can't have, because it is doing what they wanted, which is hurting German morale. Exactly. And it's scaring people. And we hear that there's this private who was the only known survivor of this ambush. And they bring him in and he starts to describe that they scout they killed everyone except for a few guys and they started scalping everyone mm-hmm. um and we cut to Brad Pitt and his men and they are scalping people yeah we go back to the flashback him telling the story yep. um as we experience this and this is the thing is like i'm 100% in agreement with you that wars aren't pretty and mm-hmm. that sometimes things have to happen to win a war yeah. you know and it's like if you go well what if doing this kind of heinous act saves these thousand soldiers over here right is it worth it and i and I'm 100% uh, believe movies should engage in those questions. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's what Tarantino's doing in this film. Okay. You know, and scalping is a really weird one. Well, yeah. Well, because of the, you know, the Native American aspect of it, all saying Brad Pitt's a half Apache or whatever. Yeah. But I don't know Pitt's actual origin, but the character obviously is half Apache. So it's to send a signal to these, uh, to the Germans for what they're doing. Yeah, and the question is for yourself: Like, are you happy? Like this scene we're about to, the scene we're about to talk about. At no point in this scene am I okay with anything that's happening. Yeah, I'm not either. And I don't think you're supposed to be. That's what I. That's what the thing is about this movie. It's about the ugliness and the dirtiness, and it's what you saw in the '70s versions of these World War II movies done in the '70s. They had an uglier aspect to them, more grittier, dirtier, blacker aspect to them um, than. Uh, you had seen in these like Sergeant York and these, right. you know, the, you know, saving everybody and that kind of thing. These were the more uglier truths of what might have happened over there. And remember, you know, people think Vietnam is the first time we had PTSD or uh, oh, people are coming back. No, people came back from World War II pretty messed up. World War One as well. So just because it was like, you know, the golden generation doesn't mean people weren't still like had a hard time talking about it. You know, we hear a little bit more about like they picked up some other guys like yeah. like a. Austrian Jew who had escaped and had mm. kind of joined their group. And then we start to hear there's one German they've brought in, which is Stiglitz. Stiglitz. And then Hugo Stiglitz. As soon as we start talking about Hugo Stiglitz, who narrates our little flashback <laughs> into his life? Sam Jackson. The reason for Hugo Stiglitz's celebrity among German soldiers is simple. As a German enlisted man, he killed 13 Gestapo officers. Man, we've had a lot of Sam Jackson yeah, lately in yeah. small. Like we just literally our last film was coming to America, That's which right. he showed up. And of course, Sam Jackson is a huge uh, collaborator with Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. and he does this narration of this guy who is a German soldier who went after the Nazis himself, and and mm-hmm. and there's just brutal video of all the killing, yeah, including him like driving his hand into a dude's mouth yeah. or something. It just looks awful. Um, and he got captured. And the bastards heard about him, and they came to break him out. Yeah, I, I love Brad Pitt's um, when he comes to talk to him. He goes, "Are you Hugo Stiglitz?" And the guy nods, and he says, "We're the bastards. Have you heard of us?" Nod, um, and then he says, "We just want to say we're a big fan of your work. When it comes to killing Nazis. 
I think you show great talent. And I pride myself in having an eye for that kind of talent. Your status as Nazi killers is still amateur. We all come here to see if you want to go pro. Again, a nod. Yeah. Here's the thing about this. There's a lot of film reference throughout this movie. That is like a speech that a talent scout gives to a young talent. Yeah. You know what I mean? We said it's a lot of talent, and I recognize talent, yeah. you know? Or or like a, a You got it, kid. A baseball scout or yeah. something like that. That's kind of how this sounds. Yep. Uh and then we go back to uh this bridge where we've got these guys and we're talking to a German sergeant mm -hmm. um, and he recognizes who they are. And he said, he basically offers them two choices. Either you tell us exactly where all your German soldiers are stationed in this orchard that we want to go attack mm -hmm. numbers, armament, where they're positioned, or we're going to kill you. Right. And this German soldier is quite brave. Mm-hmm. And he says, you can't expect me to give information that would put German lives in danger. To which Brad Pitt responds. Well, now, that's where you're wrong, because that's exactly what I expect. I need to know about Germans hiding in trees. And you need to tell me. And you need to tell me right now. I just take that finger of yours and point out on this here map where this party's being held. How many's it coming? And what they brought to play with. And the sergeant, very with great dignity, I think, puts his hand to his heart and says, I respectfully refuse, sir. And then you hear this bang. Hear that? Yes. That's Sergeant Donnie Donowitz. You might know him better by his nickname. The Bear Jew. Yes, he's heard of the Bear Jew. Um, what did you hear? And it's funny because this is very similar to what we saw in the first scene yeah. where Londa says, what have you heard about me? And he says, I hear this is guy who beats German soldiers with a club. He bashes the brains in with a baseball bat, what he does. And hey, Werner, I'm going to ask you one last goddamn time. If you still respectfully refuse, I'm calling the bear you over. He's going to take that big bat of his and he's going to beat your ass to death with it. And he, the sergeant says, fuck you and your Jew dogs. And all the, the bastards are thrilled to hear this yeah. because they don't get to go see movies. <laughs> this is the best entertainment they get. Yeah, that's what Pitt says. And we call off to Donnie, yeah. Donnie Donowitz, and he says, God's German here wants to die for the country. Oblige him. And there is a long pause, and we hear the banging of the bat against the stone, and the camera pushes in on the German, and the music is building. And it pushes in on the black in the tunnel, and then it pushes back in on the German. It just goes on forever. Yeah. You know, and it is good, but it goes on for me forever. And then out comes Donnie, the bear Jew, Eli Roth. Mm -hmm. uh, Want to know who was originally he wanted to cast? Oh, Ben Affleck? Adam Sandler. Oh, Jesus. That would not have worked. He was doing funny people at the time. Oh, okay. So he couldn't do it. Right. Well, this is what's... That's ah, weird. And he comes out and... Uh, points to like a metal on the guy's chest and he says she's after killing Jews and then he just beats him to death the guy says no bravery Right. Which is an interesting thing yeah. to say. And then boom. Which there's no question. This is a brave man. Mm -hmm. 
and they beat him to death just brutally. Yeah. It's ugly. It's nasty. That's what I tell you. Like, yeah, there's no, no cheering here. This is ugly what they're doing. Well, but then Donnie cheers and all the bastards cheer. Right. They yeah. cheer. But I'm telling you, I don't think the audience is cheering for this as it's happening. Because we have a, we, don't, we don't know what this German soldier has done. We don't know the German soldier's background. We don't know if that guy has actually killed Jews or done anything like that. You know, you find out, you know, like these guys got recruited into this shit and had to work. It was money. That guy... I'm not excusing, obviously I'm not excusing anything, but you don't know in terms of the world of the movie what this German soldier has done. He's just a Nazi. So they, they're they they're all Nazis to them. There's no, like, gray area with them. So, for the bastards, I mean. So they're going to mete out their justice. What he does just is, once again, and I think, this, Steve, you kind of accidentally stumbled upon this. The way to look at this movie is that both of these men are psychopaths in different ways. Um, Londa and Brad Pitt's and uh, yeah, Brad Pitt's character Aldo, Lieutenant yeah, Aldo, Aldo Rain, yeah, yeah, Aldo, yeah, which is a great reference to. But uh, you know, both of these men are psychopaths in different ways, and they meet out their justice in different, and they both enjoy dragging out their justice just as much as the other one. Um, it depends on you how you feel about it, uh, which way you want to go about it, right? Obviously, Landa is more of the uh, the villain of the piece. But the way Pitt is fighting him is at his level. Well, and, th- and that's th- interesting. This is this is or Al Ray is fighting him. I guess this is why I struggle with the movie. Is mm-hmm. that I don't struggle with I don't have a problem with violence on film. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Pulp Fiction has a lot of violence, sure. Um, but Pulp Fiction isn't about anything important. You don't watch Pulp Fiction going right. There's a deep message here. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's really the opposite. Like a lot of Pulp Fiction is like, isn't it thrilling yeah. that we're playing in this area? And there's all sorts of violent thrills and funny thrills and all these twists and turns within the structure of that plot. That's fun. Right. But you don't go, oh, this means something. And because of the way this film, the way that opening scene plays, and then the way this scene plays, I I go like... You know, I really want to go to Quentin Tarantino. It's like, what were you trying to say? Like, why? What was the point of this film? And I don't quite know what it is. Maybe there isn't a point. He was just having fun himself. Well, that's what I think it is. I mean, honestly, that's what I think it is. Because I want to look up the word inglorious, right? It's not supposed to be a word that is a positive word to have. No. Glorious bastard, that would be something, right? Even bastard meaning fatherless children, right? Right. So the idea of an inglorious thing. What does it mean? Well, it means not glorious. Right. Well, it's an action or situation causing shame or a loss of honor. And that's essentially what they're doing, causing shame and a loss of honor to these people and what they're doing. Wait. Scalping them is the loss of honor. For the Germans. Right. That's what I'm saying. And the same thing is going on on Landa's side. He is causing shame and loss of honor to do, whoever Do the bastards have any honor? Uh, in my opinion, the honor that they're killing Nazis, yes, but... The way they're going about it is breaking all the laws of the Geneva Convention. So what kind of, do they have the full, are they honorable people? Maybe not in their tactics, but certainly in their intention. Do you think that sergeant deserved to be beaten to death and then scalped? No. Neither do I. But I thought the sergeant certainly deserved to die. Why? uh, Because it's war. And you've got to, this guy, if you're not going to send him back, you've got to send him as a message to the other Nazis to scare them. That's their tactic. That is what they're doing. Right. But I don't think that uh, enemy soldiers deserve to die if they are captured, mm-hmm. which they were. I mean, and this is the problem with the whole, like... Well, you'll see. I mean, what would you do? I don't know what you would do. You haven't been in a theater of war. You haven't been trained to be in a theater of war. You would think 
you know, that you'll do these things, but you never know. And I think that's what, and a lot of people who came back from the war damaged probably went in like you thinking one thing and had to do some terrible shit and came out and were damaged. It's interesting that you say that. So, um, and I'm not denying that you might not, you might. No, no, of course. Yeah, I get it. No, I know. I don't know how I would behave. Absolutely. I don't, you know, and I don't know if I would have the courage to, who knows? I don't know how Mm -hmm. I would act under fire. Absolutely. So there's actually is a group of Jewish um, special forces unit that parachuted behind enemy lines before uh, D-Day. Oh, wow. Um, And they were, uh, and in fact, in this case, the captain, the leader of the group is, was also Jewish. Fred Meyer was his name. And they parachuted into Austria and their mission was to monitor troop movements going over the Italian Alps. Mm -hmm. That was where it started. And uh, the main guy, Fred Meyer, actually posed as a wounded German soldier. And it was the same thing. It was uh, all like Jewish immigrants from Germany who had escaped uh, the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. who had come to the U.S. and then volunteered to go back in. So they were all fluent German speakers. And this guy, uh, the leader, posed as a wounded German soldier, actually pulled a salary while living in Innsbruck, Austria. He put together a um, a courier system of women moving back and forth across the Alps Mm -hmm. to give, they found... uh, all sorts of troop movements, supply lines, when the supply trains were coming, schedules for the trains. They found Hitler's bunker. Wow. And sent that information. And then Fred Meyer said, you know what? I think we have enough people here to launch an underground resistance. Let me organize it. And the OSS said, no. Hmm. We want your information. We nothing. That's the most important thing. We don't want. We we actually don't want you to do any fighting. Right. We want information. And I'll tell you more about his story a little later because okay. he's a really interesting person sounds like it. um i mean you know it's like the idea certainly throughout history there are there are times where someone said let's scare the crap out of these yeah. people with our barbarity um that is definitely a tactic um it's not a tactic i like um Absolutely. okay and so, i really hate and i really hate uh his boston accent to uh, doing that eli roth yeah i just really hate not, not that i'm not saying it's unauthentic i think he is from boston it's just i hate that he's just so over it about it. it's just so it's so on the nose. You he, know? he says he modeled this character after a buddy of his from Boston. Yeah. So he right. was just doing that guy. Ted, wait, wait, yawn. And of course, the next person, they say, uh, you know, when another guy gets shot and they say, okay, why don't you come up? Do you want to point out where the right. stuff is? And the guy goes, it's here and here and here, <laughs> yeah. here and here and here. So clearly the uh, murder of the first yeah. guy definitely the ta- works. The tactics worked. And yeah. it's funny, there's a really weird bit of filmmaking that normally is a thing you would never do, which is as he's pointing out, we have, we have Brad Pitt, we have the guy translating from the German and we have Mm. the German soldier and we have the map. And rather than doing it in a wide shot or doing it in cuts where we see Brad Pitt, we see a cut of the mat, we see the guy, is that it's one camera shot that's moving from guy to translator to Brad Pitt to map to translator to guy to Brad Pitt to map, which is something you generally don't do, but Mm -hmm. it actually works really well uh, here. And then we go back to Hitler and he asks, how did they survive? And he says, oh, well, they let me go. Now, when you report what happened here, you can't tell them you told us what you told us, they'll shoot you. They're going to want to know why you so special, we let you live. So tell them, we let you live so you can spread the word through the ranks what's going to happen to every Nazi we find. And now we're back to Hitler, um, who's saying, don't tell anybody <laughs> what you saw. And then we ask if they marked you. Yeah, yes. And he says, yes. <laughs> And now we're back. Like the other survivors. Yeah. So this has happened for quite a while. This has happened before. We go back to Brad Pitt, and he asks what he's going to do when he gets home. And he's like, oh, I'm going to go hug my mother. Will you take off the uniform? And he says he's going to burn the uniform. Right. 
Uh, and Brad Smith says, that's what we thought. We don't like that. You see, we like our Nazis in uniforms. That way you can spot them. Just like that. If you take off that uniform, ain't nobody gonna know you's a Nazi. And that don't sit well with us. So I'm gonna give you a little something you can't take off. And there's back to Hitler, and he's taking off his hat, and we see that swastika-shaped scar on his forehead. Mm-hmm. And then we're back to a low angle, looking up at Brad Pitt, and I forget who the other bastard is. Oh, I think it's Eli Roth. Yeah, it's Eli Roth. You know, pretty good at that. You know how you get to Carnegie Hall, don't you? Practice. <laughs> Have you ever heard about this? I, I'd done a lot of World War II deep dive research and study, and I'd never heard. Scarring people with swastikas? Yeah. No, I've never heard. Such an interesting concept to put in a film. Of course, it bothers me. Um, it does. Of really? course it does. That does. Why wouldn't it? Oh, I wouldn't. It doesn't bother me at all. John. Yeah. Chapter three. German night in Paris. Oh. We've reached 1944, and we're at a movie theater. And there's a marquee, and there's a woman who climbs up. We see a Lenny Riffenstahl movie is playing, um, who is, of course, the famous, infamous director of Triumph of the Will and yeah. Olympia. Um, have you seen those? Uh, yes. I have not. Um, should I? You should see Olympia. Okay. So, because um, the filmmaking is beautiful. I mean, yeah. the, the woman was a brilliant filmmaker. And... Um, uh, Olympia, uh, you, here's what I would do, is go on YouTube and do a search for Lenny Riffenstahl Olympia and watch the diving sequence or watch some of the, it is, as a sports lover, mm-hmm. it is some of the best early filming of sports in an okay. artistic way that you would really appreciate. Okay. Whether or not you want to watch the whole movie, you know, I mean, really, yeah. and Triumph of the Will, um, or Triumph of the Spirit, no, Triumph of the Will. Triumph of the Will. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really hard. It's like Birth of a Nation. I'm, I'm good not seeing it. It's, it. I don't want to say it's worse than Birth of a Nation. That's okay. a tough competition. Okay. Here's the, uh, either way, I don't want to see either one of those. That's like, that's like you. There's no, um, uh, there's no benefit of comparing the Holocaust to slavery. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, just like, they're horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Let's walk away. Yeah, exactly. And certainly Birth of a Nation and Triumph of the Will, same thing. It's yeah. horrible. Um, and uh, anyway, she's changing the title on the marquee. Mm-hmm. And we see that this is... Shoshana Dreyfus, the girl that ran away from Londa. This is four years after the massacre of her family, and a soldier walks up, um, whose actor's name I don't have in here. Oh, Daniel Brule. Okay. Uh, a very young Daniel Brule. Um, yeah. So Daniel Brule walks up, um, and he wants to talk movies with her because yeah. he's a big movie fan. And she does not want to talk to him. Right. Because he is a German soldier. He's wearing his uniform. Yeah. Um, and we find out that she actually owns it, that she inherited this movie theater from her from her aunt. Um, and he keeps trying to talk movies. And finally, she climbs down that ladder. She doesn't even finish doing the title, mm. uh, wants to head inside. And he, he asks an interesting question, which he's like, well, if you hate the Germans and hate Lenny Riffenstahl, why do you have her name up on the marquee? And she says, because the French respect directors. Yeah, I, I love a, that. Well, and it's interesting, too, because there's a weird way that this movie about killing Nazis yeah. is a movie about movies. Yeah. Because we already had uh, Aldo Rain talk about, like, I see your talent. Right. And now we're at a movie theater. And now we have the, you know, Jewish survivor of the massacre of her family mm-hmm. say that she will put Lenny Riffenstahl's name, the, the most important propagandist under Hitler, to defame and degrade the Jews yeah. because we respect directors. 
It's a really interesting, uh, interesting thing there. And he wants to know her name. And she goes, oh, do you want to see my papers? Which is a great, mm-hmm. like, you can force me to show right. me your name. Right. But I am going to do it willingly. And right. he gives her his ID. And we see that her name is Emmanuel, yeah. which it's not. Mimiu. Which is an event, I think, is an homage to Yvette Mimiu, who's a famous oh. French actress. Well, there's so many film references, and Emmanuel Bayard. So yeah. Um, well, and maybe this is the thing just about Tarantino in general. Mm-hmm. He's not interested in the world. He's right. interested in film. Yeah. And his films, all of his films, on some level, are about film. Right. You know, Pulp Fiction is a film about Pulp Fiction. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Kill Bill is a film all about revenge films. Grindhouse, same thing. Yeah. The it's he, Grindhouse. He's, and this is his film about. World War II films. Yeah, right. But not his film about World War II. I guess that's... maybe, yeah. And maybe that's where I can't quite relate to it 100%. Okay. Um, and he's still trying to charm her. It was a pleasure meeting a fellow movie lover and says goodbye and she watches him go. And then we're later on, we're in some cafe and she's, you know, smoking and having a little drink of wine. And who walks by in the window but Frederick, the same yeah. uh, German soldier. Frederick Zoller. And he wants to come in and she's like, would you please stop? pestering me um and it's so he is so how do you let me ask you this question how do you feel about him at this point in the film uh he's persistent but also disrespectful she's made it very clear that she does not want him around right she's not being coy about it she's she's not being playfully flirty about it and particularly considering that she's a french woman and he's a german soldier exactly she's been pretty strong with him and yeah She's in a situation, he's the power. No matter what her resistance is, she is in a submissive position just by the fact that they are in occupied France. And says what he says, she says to him, go find some girl who's Vichy. Go find a Vichy girl. And she tries to be very clear with him, like, you know, stop being a child. Don't be a child. You know the reasons why, you know, you know the situation, blah, blah, blah. So she's very clear with him. He's persistent. But what do you think? So here's, I'll I'll just say what I think. Yeah, yeah. Is that what's interesting about it, I think, is that I think at this moment in the movie, you kind of like and believe him. I don't. He's wearing a Nazi uniform. I think he's he's wearing a Nazi uniform. For me, immediately, uh, I don't trust him. And especially because the way Landa has been laid out, it's this is my mentality as I watch any person wearing a Nazi uniform who's trying to be nice initially. There is, I want to get something from this. And later on, we see that. There's no question that he is a horrible, horrible person. Uh, yeah. But I think he charms me okay. a little bit in going like, because what I see that he is, I, I having watched the whole film, I go, mm-hmm. this was all an act. Mm-hmm. But what I see is that he genuinely is a film lover, which I think he is. Right. And that he is trying to, hey, don't see me as a German soldier. Mm-hmm. I'm try- and he is He says I'm more than just a uniform. Yeah. And he's yeah. and he's charming in his way, or trying to be charming. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, he says like, you know, she says, Stop being a pest. He's like, I don't want to be a pest. And then a German officer shows up mm-hmm. who's and he immediately slaps to attention and salutes. But the officer seems more excited about seeing him. Yeah. And shakes his hand, and there's a big smile, and she's looking at this going, What is going on? Ask who is he? And his response is, oh, I thought you thought I was just a uniform. Mm-hmm. And then she goes, well, maybe you're someone's son, like you're the son of a general or something like that. And then another German sees him and goes, oh, my God, and runs up and talks to him. And the German and a girl comes in. They shake mm-hmm. his hand. And she's watching. And there's this 
excited conversation in German, and then they ask for an autograph. Yeah. And the girl says, you should be so, you're so lucky yes. to have this man as your boyfriend. Yeah. To be the girlfriend of a war hero. Yeah, of a war hero. Yeah. Yeah. And they go away very proud of their autograph, and she's now, okay, you're a war hero. Yeah. And he explains, I was alone in a bell tower, walled off city, held off 300 enemy soldiers, and that he was a sniper. And she asked, how many did you kill? And this is just insane, these numbers. 68 the first day, 150 the second day, 32 the third day. Yeah. That is. But I don't know if he's telling the truth. I don't know either. 300 people, apparently. One guy. It's a, I mean, I don't know if he's telling the truth. And what's interesting, too, and that and that they go on that, you know, that they wanted to make a movie about him. He's going to be the German Sergeant York, who, yeah. you, who you mentioned before. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and it ends up that he talked to Goebbels and Goebbels wanted him to play himself in the movie, which he did. <laughs> and that Goebbels thinks the movie will make him the country's Van Johnson, which is <laughs> it's all these weird movie references. Great reference. Yeah. The, the, and the film is called Nation's Pride and it's starring him. And he, again, in a self-deprecating way, goes like, I know, it's comical. And she says, good luck with your movie. I hope it goes well for you and Joseph. And she is gone. Yep. She walks out. What's weird to me is like, this is another, because this is really Audie Murphy in a weird way. Mm -hmm. And the Audie Murphy, for those of you who don't know, was is the most decorated uh, American in the history of the country. Mm -hmm. uh, in not just the Congressional Medal of Honor, but it's like a ton of awards. And mm -hmm. he became a movie star. And he played himself in the movie, The Audie Murphy Story. Yeah. And his, it's not these numbers, but he did defend a whole bunch of people mm -hmm. single-handedly. It's an incredibly heroic story. Mm -hmm. The Audie Murphy Story is not a particularly great movie. No. Um, but but it, is a, it is an amazing story. It's rare when the stars play themselves that it ever works. Yeah. The Babe Ruth story is terrible with Babe Ruth. Oh, yeah. Muhammad Ali, the greatest, it's terrible. Terrible. Even though most recently, that one uh, 15, 17 to Paris or whatever, he used the actual guys who, like, attacked oh, the right. terrorists. I, yeah. Terrible movie. I mean, there's a reason that actors are... Yes. Yeah. Yes. <sighs> okay. <laughs> there. I mean, occasionally there are people that are not actors that are good. Howard Stern in Private Parts is proves that point. But I, it's rare. I still have a little memory of that movie. I remember actually surprisingly liking it. I know. Movie. Me yeah. too. I liked it. Um, we're back at the theater. She's finishing doing stuff on the marquee, and up comes a car, and a German officer gets out and says, calls her by her name and says, get in the car. Yeah. And she kind of goes, what's all this about? And they say, get your ass in the car, and she does. Yeah, man. I think they slap her ass. Yeah, he does. Too. He slaps her ass to get in there. And now we show up at this dinner, <laughs> and there is Joseph Goebbels. Yeah. Who is the head of you know Nazi propaganda, mm -hmm. and he's sitting with his French translator and talking about Jesse Owens and you know that America was built on Negro sweat, and there's a title comes up that says you know Dr. Joseph Goebbels the number two man in Hitler's Third Reich, which I don't think he is the number two man. I don't know who was it Goering. I thought Goering was more. Okay. Well, Goering's the military, right? Yeah. Anyway. Um, um, and they bring <laughs> like, in. Let's not quibble, Steve. Yeah, well, not. they're all bad people. I mean. Um, and in comes Shoshana, and yes. and there's Frederick there, and he wasn't sure that she would accept his invitation. Yeah. Um, so this is the first clue that something more nefarious is going on here because he wasn't sure she would accept his invitation. Yep. So they send a harder ass German. Harder ass Nazi. No, agreed. To get her to come, agreed. And that's where you start to see there's 
cracks in Frederick's presentation of he, himself. He, uh, it, it, it's funny as more gets revealed about him, he is yeah. just—he's a genuinely scary dude. Yes. You know, and then uh, she gets introduced to Goebbels, who reaches out to shake her hand. The way he shakes her hand is like his fingers are, it's just really yeah. creepy, like wiggly fingers. It's it, very, very gross. Like he's supposed to, which I like. <laughs> Introduces this his French interpreter, and then we immediately cut to the shot of her getting fucked from behind yeah. by Goebbels. Do you think, what was the, we got it. I don't know why he showed that scene. I get that well, there. The, Tarantino likes this that's a Tarantino thing. Yeah. You know, that's just kind of, it's really, I, I think part of my feeling is that about, and I feel this about Hateful Eight too, which I like a lot of parts mm -hmm. about Hateful Eight, is that Tarantino has gotten so much praise and has so much power that there aren't people saying, that's brilliant, let's cut that down. Yeah. You know, let's 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 bring that in. Well, he doesn't have to. I know. People go to his movies. Yeah. No, I, I, I but I think his movies would be yeah. better if someone did. Yeah. Um, Julia Dreyfus plays the French interpreter. Julia Dreyfus and Julia Louis Dreyfus for right. those listening. She was in Kill Bill. She's the girl that gets her arms cut off in Kill Bill ah. in the first part at right. the end. There, yeah. That's your uh, and that's your favorite Tarantino, isn't it? Kill Bill. Yeah, the old, yeah. both of them combined, yeah. Yeah. not separated, combined. Yeah, yeah. Kill Bill to me is like there are sequences that I think are absolutely amazing. Mm -hmm. I don't like part two as much as part one. Okay, and uh, but it, I mean. I'm never not going to say that Tarantino's not a genius. Is I Pulp, think he's a genius. Is Pulp or Reservoir your favorite? Reservoir, I think, is still my favorite. Yeah. I, I think because that movie is tight yep. and just it's so great mm -hmm. beginning to end. And it's not because this movie is self-indulgent, in my opinion. Inglorious Bastards. Inglorious Bastards. Okay. It just goes, there's times where it just goes on and on. <laughs> and yeah. it's going on well, but it's like, we'll get to some of the ones that I okay. think definitely could be cut down. Uh, we introduce a major from the Gestapo. Um, mm -hmm. and pulls out a chair. She sits down. They offer her champagne. And we get a little thing where Goebbels said, oh, I couldn't, I can't even get to see my star. Like, everyone waits in line to meet me, but I have to wait in line to meet my star. He's, you know, why is this? Like, I'm the guy who is the ear of the Fuhrer. Right. Um, and now we get to this thing of there's a reason that they brought her here. Yeah. And the reason is that, that Frederick Zoller thinks that they should film, have the premiere in her movie theater. Right. Is does he doing all of this just because he wants her? Yes, I think so too. Absolutely, and also I think he's enlisted Goebbels, yeah, to be his wingman in a way, essentially by saying like, "Oh, I, you know, everyone stands in line to meet me. I had to stand in line to meet him because of you. He's smitten with you, blah blah yeah. blah." And it was supposed to be at the Ritz, and this place is smaller. It doesn't yeah. have as many luxury boxes. It doesn't have all the stuff that they would want. Um, and then uh, Zoller makes this big speech um, about. This is a good thing. It makes it more exclusive. People fighting to get seats. To hell with the French. This is a German night for Germans about you and me. Um, and Goebbels kind of looks at him and is like, going, man, I trained you too well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, you're going to go into politics? I think I've created a monster. <laughs> um, and they kind of go like, yeah, let's, let's, let's go see a private screening of a movie at the cinema. I have to go check it out. Right. And then just as they're talking about this, we hear, ah, Londa, you're here. And there's a music hit, and there's a reaction from her, and there is Christoph Waltz standing behind her. He looks down and kisses her hand. Her eyes are just... This is some great acting throughout this I whole agree. scene from Melanie Laurent. Yeah, I, I think she's great in this sequence. Yeah. 
And then all of them, they have to leave. They have to go somewhere. And yep. she wants to get up and go. And he goes, no, 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 sit down. I want to talk to you. <laughs> um, because he wants to talk to her. But he's apparently in charge of security for the theater. And he wants to talk to her about the security. Um, and what's so interesting, as they're leaving and having conversations about security and yep. all this stuff, the camera just stays on her. Yep. Which I think is a brilliant, brilliant bit of direction. Zoller questions Landa. Mm -hmm. Zoller says, are you... She was already approved. What are you going to ask her about? And he says to him, that sounds suspiciously, suspiciously like an enlisted man yes. questioning a colonel. Yep. And he's just like, oh, no, no. I just mean the repetition. I just want to know if your repetition procedure is one of the things. Everything's mm -hmm. like, we should be worried about, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, 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 it's fine. But like in that moment, once again, here's Zoller kind of feeling himself a little bit because of his status as a quote unquote war hero. Yep. Uh, trying to throw his weight on a little bit, and Landa kind of cuts his, yep. cuts him off at the knees, and he has to like kind of backtrack. Yeah, it's an interesting moment. So we're going to go into a scene that, in in some ways, is very much like the first scene. We mm -hmm. see the same kind of moves. He asks her about strudel. He wants to get uh, the can of the strudel without the cream. Without the cream, he right. orders milk for her. Orders milk for her. Which is when he orders milk for her. Do you think he knows who she is? I was literally that question. I was going to ask you the exact <laughs> same question. So I've gone back and forth. Here's what I think. Yeah. I think the answer is yes. Ooh. But I have no idea why he's doing what he's doing. Right. Why is he? What? Because I go, in fact, so much of his behavior from this point forward in the film, mm -hmm. I go, what's, why is he doing this? What kind of a get is it, though, to get her? Like, now. There's no status to it, right? She's here. She has a theater, blah, blah, blah. What would it mean? It's easy. He, he has her under his... He can get her anytime he wants. Agreed. She's in plain sight. Yes. So this is his way of messing with her. And so as this goes along and the cream and everything like this, everything like at the when he gets the cigarette off through the cigarette, when he douses his cigarette, puts out his cigarette on the strudel, which is symbolic in my opinion, uh, or foreshadowing of what's yeah. going to happen later. Um, and then it says, I have another question to ask you. And then just stares at her with menace. Right. And to, then doesn't ask anything. To see if she sh she breaks. Yeah. I think he's testing her to see if she breaks. And then goes, ah, I forgot it. Oh, well, must not have been that well, important. I think, I mean, incredible. I, you know, going back to the, the lioness playing with her prey. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is, he likes to, he, he like, or the cat that likes to play. Yeah. Like, he likes to play. It's, that's what turns him on on mm -hmm. some level. Mm -hmm. So he likes, fuck, if, if, if he just, he could have just walked in in the first scene and shot the Jews through the floor. And it oh, would have been yeah. over. That oh, wasn't. Yeah. That's not fun for him, right? So I think him seeing that she doesn't break mm -hmm. makes him go, "Oh, this is fun," mm -hmm. you know. And it is weird. This scene mirrors that first scene in it so does. many ways. It does. The smoking, the cream, the mm -hmm. slow, slow pace, the bunch of questions, the extremely quiet person you're talking to who's yeah. trying not to break. It's all really, really similar. And the cutting, some of the like, even just the. Cut to the strudel. Cut to her. <laughs> the cream. Fork, the yeah. cream. Yeah. And all of those things, again, they build tension. I love it. Um, yeah. And her reaction at the end of it when he walks away. It's amazing. Fantastic. Yeah, it's great. It's. A, I think it's a really, really, really good moment. Yeah. We're back at the movie theater, and we see the Germans. They look around at the lobby. They talk about things they're going to do to spruce it up. Mm -hmm. There's some argument about film that he, I don't even know what they're talking yeah. about. Lillian Harvey. I don't, I don't know who that don't is. Don't say her name again. Yeah. We also have heard, by the way, that she has a uh, African or black uh, projectionist. Mm -hmm. who she says, well, he's a Frenchman. Yeah. And they do not want him right. being the projectionist. This is in the scene between Landa and yeah. her that it comes up, yes. Yeah. And he says these kind of semi-derogatory yep. things about him. Yeah. And then all the Germans leave. 
and she's left with Marcel, the projectionist. And it's sort of like, what the fuck are we supposed to do? Right. And she says, it looks like we're going to have a Nazi premiere. To which he responds, what the fuck are we supposed to do? <laughs> yeah. Um, and she wants to talk to him about that. He says, what? And she says, filling the cinema with Nazi and burning it to the ground. Yeah. And I think he knew that this was already, I think he already knew this is what she would want to do. Marcel did. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and then we go and we talk about, well, we have all this nitrate film. We, it's hard to keep the place from burning to the down ground anyway. I think we could do it ourselves on purpose if we wanted to. Yeah. Um, and he calls, what I think I find most interesting, he calls her Shoshana. Yeah. So he knows. And then we go in back to Sam Jackson giving us a little important narration about the flammability of nitrate <laughs> film. At that time, 35 millimeter nitrate film was so flammable that you couldn't even bring a reel onto a streetcar. Hey, you can't bring those there in a public vehicle. They're films, ain't they? Yes. Then they're flammable. Go on up, Because nitrate film burns three times faster than paper. <laughs> what movie does this make you think of? Oh, I don't know. What, what were we thinking? One of our earliest podcasts and one of your favorite films. Okay. Cinema Paradiso. Oh, I'm yes. not saying it, it makes you think of that, Don't but that's know. immediately what it made me that's think of. That's right, right. He um, blind, he gets blinded by the film, right? Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> um, and we find out they have a huge collection of nitrate film, which is super, super flammable. And she, ba and she basically says that if I'm going to burn it down, which I am, well, you're going to help me because you love me and I love you, and you're the only person on earth that I can trust. Yeah. Um, but that's not, and then they go, well, that's not all they're going to do. Um, and she asks about their filmmaking equipment and their sound equipment. And he says, oh, no, it all works great. And he's, why? Because, Marcel, my sweet, we are going to make a film just for the Nazis. Yeah. So now we have a movie um, that is about where one of the bad guys is the star of a movie. Mm -hmm. And that movie is going to be shown at a movie theater. And the weapon we're going to use to kill the Nazis is film. Yeah. And really using film as a weapon might be the ultimate Tarantino-esque plot device. I mean, we said before that this guy really isn't interested in real life. He's interested in film life. And his movies are really movies about movies. So, of course, film is the weapon we're going to use to kill the Nazis. And in part two, our team of Nazi hunters is going to be joined by, of course, a film critic and a German movie star. As always, you can subscribe to The Cinephiles on iTunes, on YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify, and a whole bunch of other places. Please leave reviews on iTunes. Leave your comments on YouTube. Visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. And you can support our show on Patreon.com slash The Cinephiles, where you can pick a movie or listen to our new Cinephile shorts. I think up there right now is our discussion of Steven Spielberg's comments about whether or not streaming services should be eligible for Oscars. It's a great conversation, and the only way to hear it is to become a supporter on patreon and of course if you want to buy inglorious bastards or any other movie we've ever reviewed take a visit to our website cinephiles.net pick up the film and come back next week for part two of inglorious bastards 